Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. Well, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So a few weeks ago, I thought I broke my foot in the service of Christmas. Long story short, I've been whining about this for months now, so you're probably sick of it, but I had surgery to repair a torn labrum in my right shoulder this summer, and the rehab has gone not that great. There's like eight anchors in there. It was super messed up. So I still don't have full reach with my right arm, which made it a challenge to get Christmas lights put up. And so I decided this year, instead of standing on a ladder and reaching up, I was going to lean out our second story windows and reach down. And you're probably all going to be like super surprised to hear this. It did not go as well as I hoped it might, but it was going all right. It was at least working until I had to reach as far as I possibly could with my left arm And then I lost my center of gravity and fell out the window, just face first toward my driveway. And I hooked the inside of the window with my right foot, saved my own life. And then I had to spend a couple minutes wriggling my way back up without using my right arm. And then I got back in the window and my foot hurt and I thought it was broken, but it wasn't. It was fine and the lights looked great. And my dumb, ungrateful family who didn't realize I was risking my life So they could celebrate Christmas, really appreciated the lights for a week and a half before my nine-year-old twins were like, is it Christmas yet? Those have been up forever. (laughs) And it reminded me that for adults, December usually feels like the shortest month of the year. It's so busy and so chaotic. It feels like we just had Thanksgiving, bam, Christmas is here. But for kids, it is the longest month imaginable. Like, remember when you were young and you just felt like it was taking forever for Christmas to get there? A few years ago, we made like the construction paper chains with our kids, and they would tear off one chain every night to count down the days to Christmas. And at five years old, Tommy decided it was just taking too long, and so he came up with a brilliant plan. He said, tonight, I'm going to tear off two chains, (laughs) only to have his hopes immediately smashed by his seven-year-old sister who told him, Tommy, that will not make Christmas come any faster. It will just make you the idiot with a too small chain. Because Emma has always been... uh, (laughs) A sweetheart. But like, sometimes I wonder, right, as we look at our lives and we look at our world, how many of us feel like Tommy? We're just like, how long is it going to take for me to get rid of these chains? Can I get rid of them any faster? The chains of my hurt and the chains of my frustration, the, the chains of my life being not the way I want my life to be, can I break free from these chains any faster? I think sometimes the joyfulness of the Christmas season is a pretty thin veneer for us because if we dig beneath the lights and the reindeer and the elves and the cookies and the presents, our souls are weary. And my guess is there are a lot of us in here this morning who feel like that. And even for those of us who don't, we know what it is to hurt. We know what it is to be frustrated. We know what it is to desperately wonder whether life is always going to be like this or whether maybe God just forgot about us. Like he promised us that he'd set all things right. He promised peace on earth. But is that promise real or did God just kind of ignore it? Did he forget we even exist? Did our our bad day that turned into a bad week, that turned into a bad season, just turn into a bad life and there's no getting out of it? Like if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever wondered that, you're not 
alone, we cannot help but look around us in the world today and see a whole lot of hatred and violence and division that seems to be adding darkness to a space that was already pretty dark. And at Christmas, sometimes I think we just ignore that for a little while. We use the season to paper over the cracks of our lives and try and forget that January's coming and it's bringing all of the real world's problems with it. And I think that's okay to an extent. It's all right for candy canes to be our little peppermint narcotics for one month out of the year, but the truth is we need a solution that's bigger than humanity has to offer. We need something to come in and light up this darkness and fix everything that's broken. And I have good news today. God's got a word that I believe he wants us to hear as we exist in in this shattered space that isn't quite the way we want it to be. And it's the same word he had for his people 3,000 years ago when they were oppressed and broken and and beaten down and running out of hope. When it felt like their hope was flickering, like the end of a candle, and they didn't know how much of it was left. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, you can crack it open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. It's almost dead in the middle. If you hit Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, keep going. If you hit Jeremiah, go back. But Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, contains a prophecy about Jesus that was written 700 years before he was born. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you need one or your kids do, please take one from the Next Steps area before you go. They're free. They're our gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. But this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. A quick time out. Those were the two northernmost sections of land when the 12 tribes divided up the promised land. And that was the easiest part of Israel to invade. So that's why Zebulun and Naphtali got humbled. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. And this is so cool because Galilee was a totally unimportant place. For everyone in Judah reading Isaiah's words, like Galilee of the nations, that is a backwater like, like the way most people feel about Iowa, okay? That's like, that's what happened. And then Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. It's super cool. It says, he'll honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. We will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is this beautiful, incredible, poetic prophecy and all the ways in which Jesus fulfilled it are completely mind-blowing. But I can't help but read it and wonder, like, why did they need to hear this 700 years before it happened? 
Like, assuming this is more than a parlor trick on God's end for, like, us to read thousands of years later and be like, wow, all those prophecies came true. What good did it do a bunch of people in Judah to know that, like, not in their lifetime, not for almost a millennium, light was going to shine in the darkness and a wonderful counselor was coming? Like, what sort of darkness were they living in and what sort of counsel were they receiving? We actually get a glimpse of that by reaching back into the verses just before this prophecy at the very end of Isaiah chapter 8. This is what Isaiah writes. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. All right, so what we learn is that at this time in the land of Judah, just like in the pagan nations surrounding them, when people wanted to get advice, when they wanted to figure out what choices they should make given what was going to happen in the future, they asked the dead. They pulled out their Ouija boards or they went to some witches and they're like, hey, consult some spirits of our ancestors and figure out what we should do. And you guys are probably not going to believe it, but the advice that they got, it was not very good. I'd go so far as to say it was bad. And I think in our modern minds, we're like, of course it was bad. Who would do that? Only an idiot would think that getting advice from dead people was a good way to navigate your life. And on one hand, we would be right. Only an idiot would do that. On the other hand, the king of Judah, Ahaz, idiot. All right? Big time. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Some archaeologists recently dug up like a carving of him, and they, they tried to render what he would have looked like. And this is what they come up with. All right? That's the leader. They're all following him, and he made bad decisions. Like, instead of consulting God, instead of asking the prophets or reading the scriptures to figure out what he should do, he just asked mediums and spiritists, and then he ended up getting them into conflicts and wars that ultimately spun his people into captivity. Like, at this point in time, Judah was being oppressed by Assyria, which was the world superpower of the day. And under Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser, Assyria had expanded. And under Sargon and Sennacherib, they had actually come in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Just killed tens of thousands of people and took tens of thousands more up out of their homeland and exiled them in a faraway place. And in response to that reality, the southern kingdom of Judah, instead of saying, okay, God, we were going to have to trust you here, decided, ah, we'll do it on our own. We'll just make a deal with Assyria to pay them a really heavy tax so that we can remain free. And that went really great until they ran out of money and they couldn't pay the taxes anymore. And they're like, ah, let's rebel. And then this little tiny nation of Judah tried to fight Assyria and they did not win. They got crunched and thousands upon thousands of them died. So there's this place right now where like everything was broken politically, but also they lived in a nation that was broken spiritually. Their leaders were morally bankrupt, and a whole bunch of people decided, you know what, we're just going to chase the idols of the pagan nations 
surrounding us. And so politically and spiritually and relationally and economically, it was a time that was dark and it seemed to be getting even darker. And I wonder if any of us can relate to that. Like that's the situation in Judah at the end of Isaiah chapter 8. It just ends in gloom and doom and death and anguish. God's people are battered, beaten, poor, and looking out at a world that seems to be getting worse. And they're running out of hope. And it's into that moment and that space that God speaks the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. It's into that darkness that he says, hey, a light is coming. It's kind of fascinating. The, the word we translate deep darkness is on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light will come. It, it's this Hebrew word, salmaveth. It literally means death darkness. Like, try and picture that in your mind. It says on the people living in the land of death, darkness. What it means is the people of Judah felt every day like they existed underneath the shadow of death. And then God said, light's coming. How? Well, in the form of a son given to us. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know the son was Jesus, and Jesus actually was a game changer. But try, if you can, to suspend your understanding that the son was Jesus for a minute and put yourself in the place of someone living in Judah 700 years before Jesus was born. Like, your life is messed up. The world is not the way you want it to be. You're living under the shadow of death, not knowing if the Assyrians are going to murder you any given day. You're crying out for a word from God, and Isaiah the prophet shows up, and he goes, God spoke to me. And you're like, Oh, good. Oh, good. What does God have for us? And Isaiah goes, he's going to send a baby. That would not be very hopeful. Like, I don't know if any of you have ever met a baby. I have met them. I had a few live with me. They don't help with anything. Like, if you're oppressed militarily and economically, a baby is not going to solve that problem. They eat, sleep, cry, poop, repeat. What good is that going to do? Nothing. Nothing. Unless Alice is some sort of special baby. I mean, like, a, like a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace, an everlasting father. Like a baby like that might actually be able to solve some problems. Because I don't think we can possibly overemphasize the meaning of the four names that God gives to the son who will be given in this prophecy. They're meant to be the deep well of hope from which his people could continually draw. Because names matter. Names matter to us. Like when we're having a kid, we try really hard to give it a name that, like, that is good, that kids in school can't rhyme with and be cruel. Like, I'm crying Brian. <laughs> or, like, or like names of people we hate. Like my sister's ex-boyfriend's neighbor was named Carl. We're not naming this kid Carl. Like names matter to us, but culturally, they mattered exponentially more to the ancient Israelites. And so these names that God gives the baby are meant to be a source of peace and hope for them. And I want to talk about all four names this morning because I think there's some peace and hope to be found in those names for us still today. And I think our world is dying for peace and hope. All right, so what does it mean that this son that's given is going to be a wonderful counselor? Well, the two root words for wonderful counselor are wonder and wisdom. And so what it means is, is that this child that's given is going to have a wisdom that confounds the wisdom of the world, a wisdom that's greater than the wisdom of humanity, which was currently failing them. A few years ago, like when my kids were really little, 
Jenny was out running some errands, and I was trying to get some work done sitting at my dining room table while the kids played downstairs. And after like three minutes of peaceful playing, I heard fighting in the basement. So I did what any great dad would do. I walked over to the stairs, and I shot some deep wisdom down there. Like, hey, share! I sat back down, I'm nailing it. I am good at being a father. And uh, then two minutes later, when that stopped working, I had to add some more wisdom to the pile. So I went back to the stairs and I yelled, hey, take turns. I don't care who has it right now, take turns. And then just to make sure they understood I was serious, I threw in, don't make me come down there. And then I sat back down and it worked. It was amazing. It didn't work. (laughs) It's like... They started fighting almost immediately, and I realized the only solution to the problem was for me to go become incarnate in my basement. At some point when the word fails, the word has to become flesh and dwell among us. I had a wisdom that was greater than the childlike wisdom that was failing my kids in the basement. So what does it mean that this infant is going to be a wonderful counselor? It means he's coming with a wisdom we don't have. It's God's way of saying, look, I know things are messed up right now. I know your king is dumb. I've seen him too, all right? I got a wisdom that's greater than his wisdom. I got a wisdom that's greater than your wisdom. I have the wisdom that you need, and I'm coming downstairs. That's what it means, this wonderful counselor. But what about mighty God? This one's super cool. The word for mighty in Hebrew is gibor, and gibor literally means hero. Like the one who's coming to invade the darkness with light is a hero. He's the mighty champion of his people. He has all the power. Like every bit of the superpower the world needs to conquer the darkness, to beat back the oppression, to set us free. He can do what we can't do. He's strong where we are weak. He's the hero, God, and he's going to make all things new and set all things right. He's a mighty God and an everlasting father. This one's super cool because it's a truth claim that's fairly unique in the ancient world. See, Judah was surrounded by all these pagan cultures that believed in a pantheon of gods. They thought there was like this God and this God and this God and this God, and they all had regional power. So in whatever region they were worshipped, wherever their temple was, they had a little bit of power, but they, they didn't really have power over the entire universe. And they believed that like humans, gods could be born and gods could die. And they mostly thought that gods hated humanity that they were capricious and violent and angry, and if you offended them, they were just going to curse you. And that's basically the concept that people in the ancient Near Eastern world had of what God was like. And then along comes Isaiah, and he says, oh, no, 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 this God is everlasting. This God isn't like those gods. This God was from the beginning, and he will always be. This is the God who created all things. He is, and he was, and he is to come. This is the everlasting God with power over everything. And not only is this God everlasting, this God is a father. This isn't a God who hates humanity. No, 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 you got the story twisted. This God created humanity in his own image, and he invites every human being on this planet into a loving, meaningful, deep relationship with himself. He's an everlasting father, and he's the prince of peace. And prince is a governmental function, right? It's, it's, a, it's a role in a kingdom, and apparently this kingdom is going to be defined by peace, And the word for peace here is this Hebrew word, shalom. And shalom is a word we just don't have a cognate for in English. There's not a one-to-one translation. And so we go with peace. And that's the best one that we can use without writing a whole paragraph. But 
understanding what the Prince of Shalom means just through the English word peace is kind of like watching TV in black and white. You're getting the picture, but a whole lot of color is missing. Because Shalom is a condition in which everything is exactly the way God dreamed it up and designed it to be. It's not just the absence of conflict, which is what we think of when we hear the word peace. It's the presence of flourishing. Shalom is a situation where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And what we read in Isaiah 9 is that, that this ruler, his kingdom is going to be defined by shalom, by everything flourishing the way God designed it to flourish. And that's a huge source of hope for Judah in 700 BC because the Assyrians were one of the most awful barbaric empires that ever existed in the history of the world. Like, don't miss this. In verse 5, when he talks about, like, the, the boots that were used in battle and the blood-stained garments, like, being destined for the fire, he's not talking about Judah's army. He's not saying, like, hey, someday peace is going to come. We're not even going to need an army anymore. He's talking about the boots of the Assyrian soldiers that crushed the necks of Judah's women and children and their blood-stained battle uniforms that were stained with blood because they had massacred Judah's men. Like, that's what he's talking about. That's the picture people had in their minds as they're reading this passage. Like, oh man, like, politically, things are so messed up. We're being killed. We're being oppressed. Economically, things are so messed up. We're poor and we're in need. Socially, things are so messed up. There's division and hatred everywhere we look. There's no shalom. Like, there was no peace in Judah in 700 BC. And there was no hope whatsoever that their current government could bring it about. I think we have a frame of reference for that in America in 2023. Like, we look at our lives and we look at our world and we look at our culture, and there is darkness and there is division and there is hatred and there is violence and there is not a leader or a political party or a government on the face of the planet that can solve all that. Like, with all due respect to the venerable words Abe Lincoln spoke at Gettysburg 150 years ago, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall absolutely perish from this earth. And that's the only hope we've got. It's the only hope Judah had, that someday something better is going to come along, that someday a different sort of kingdom is going to be set up with a different sort of a king who's for us relentlessly, who makes things right and sets things the way they're supposed to be set so that human flourishing can actually happen so that nothing will be missing and nothing will be broken and all things will be new. Like, that's what it means that this one who's promised is the prince of peace. So back to the question, why in the world was this useful to the people of Judah 700 years before the baby was going to be born? Because their hope had dried up. They were looking at their lives feeling forgotten and abandoned, feeling like the darkness was going to win, feeling like death got to write the final chapter of their story. And this is God's way of telling them that is not true. They needed to hear what was coming centuries on down the line because they needed to know that darkness doesn't get the final word, death doesn't write the final chapter. In the end, God wins. Hope is alive. And I wonder how many of us in here this morning need to hear that same thing, that hope is still alive. Like I just, if you guys are anything like me, you find yourself regularly feeling like you just exist on the razor's edge between hope and despair. And any, 
in any given moment, I feel like I could go either way. Like the world is so messed up, but the message in Isaiah 9 for Judah 3,000 years ago for us today is that hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Hope is alive because Jesus is alive. His promise of peace counts for us because the Prince of Peace came for us. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace changes everything because he allows us to hope in a totally different way than we're used to hoping. Like when we talk about hope, we usually picture like dreaming about something that might happen. We don't know if it will, but it, it might. Like for instance, I hope someday someone invents an economical cure for baldness so my children will stop making fun of me. I'm not counting on it in 2023. There's one week left and the list serve of all the bald people in America. We have not gotten any updates. I don't think it's going to happen soon, but like maybe someday it could happen. And usually that's how we hope. We think like, I don't know. Maybe the best way to explain it is this. If you're a Minnesota sports fan or an Iowa State fan, right, you understand what it's like to hold on to hope. Like technically it's possible. All of us know deep down in our souls it ain't going to happen. But you can hold on to like technically it could. Are we tracking? Iowa State kind of hope is the way most of us are used to hoping. That's not the way God's asking us to hope in Isaiah 9. He said, no, 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 no. Change your hope. Shift it. Think differently. It's going to happen. We need to shift our hoping from might to will. It will happen. It's guaranteed. The last line in the prophecy in Isaiah 9, it says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Like the passionate commitment of the creator of the universe means you can guarantee it. You can take it to the bank. The end of the story is written. It will happen. Like God didn't say, I don't know, maybe a light will shine. Maybe oppression will cease. A baby could be born. That's not what God said because that's not how he wants us to hope. He wants us to know that we know that we know deep in our souls hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And that's a game changer. It's a game changer for me to to hope like that. And that, I think, is what Christmas means. We can hope without doubt because God invaded human history. He stepped into the pain and the violence and the hurt and the loss and the death and the shattered reality of our world to light up our darkness and heal up our brokenness. Like at Christmas, Jesus is our hope, and that allows us to face anything life throws at us. I know some of us walked in here this morning just with a lot of weight and a lot of worry about the next month or the next year of our lives. Some of us feel beaten down and vulnerable and broken. Some of us feel like we're at the end of our story, believing we've made so many bad choices there are no, many, or there are no more good choices available to us. Or we feel like we've just been crushed by the weight of grief and we'll never get out from under it. But whatever it is for you, wherever you're at, I want you to know God is calling out to you. He's screaming out through the prophecy in Isaiah 9 into the deafening darkness that surrounds you. I am not finished yet. I am not finished yet. So you can hold on to hope because I will make all things new and I will set all things right. The only question is... Whether we hope like that, whether we continue being discouraged and beaten down by the darkness around us, or or whether we come to God with open hands and say, okay, I believe you. I'm going to hope with confidence that since you came for me, you will continue to be everything you ever promised you would be. Because God promises us peace, and at Christmas we can count on that. And when we do, Christmas looks different. Life looks 
different because hope is transformational. It reminds us in, in our best moments and in our worst moments that our present difficulties are not worth comparing to what's coming on down the line. I think Christmas is a reminder in the middle of brokenness that beauty is coming. That like all doesn't have to be calm in order for it to be bright. And everything doesn't have to be silent in order for it to be holy. Part of the beauty of Christmas is that God came for imperfect people in the middle of their messed up lives. That he came for you and me to restore us and reconcile us and make all things new. And that allows us to live with like a different type of hope. And so I just want to invite all of us this morning to, to live like that, to hope like that, to just open our hands and say, God, would you allow that kind of hope to seep in and fill every crack in my life because my life isn't quite the way I want it to be, but I trust that you can make it so. I think if we just allow that hope to invade every square inch of our lives, then we begin to live differently through a different lens full of joy in a way that allows us not only to step into the fullness of the meaning and the life and the beauty and the hope that we were created for, but it allows us to pour hope out all over the people we crash into in a dark and hopeless world. Because the promise of peace counts for us because the Prince of Peace came for us. We pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that hope is real. God, thank you for not abandoning us to the hopelessness and the brokenness of our world and our situation. It's easy for all of us to look at our lives and feel like they are not anything close to what we want them to be. But God, would you fill us up today? Would you fill up the cracks and the broken spaces in our lives with a bold hope that allows us not only to live more fully, but allows us to pour hope out all over our hopeless world and shine light in the darkness that surrounds us so that people can find their way to the baby who was promised, who changes everything.